Good morning, Rogers Park. It's a joy to be up here. Uh, welcome if you're with us for the first time. Um, we are glad you're here. We hope you feel at home. Please um, say hello to those that are around you. If you see someone that you haven't seen before, please go um, say hello. It's a great Sunday to be here. Um, we are starting off and kicking off a new series. We're going to be looking through and preaching through the book of Exodus um, this summer. We're going to be looking at this story of the Exodus. If you know it, if something comes to mind, the story of God using Moses to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. The book of Exodus, the story of Exodus is a story of God using a man called Moses to rescue Israel from slavery in Egypt. You might think of it's being depicted in, in movies such as the, the Prince of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. My wife's smiling. She likes that one. Uh, most recently, Exodus, Gods and Kings. No, nobody knows it. I hear it wasn't very good. But even um, the fact that people are still making movies and telling these stories um, is a good indicator that not only for those that are followers of Christ or Christians, there are themes in this story that we are going to work through, which they, they resonate deeply within everybody's souls. Slavery, bondage, guilt, oppression, freedom. And yet to, to understand the significance of this book, whether you know the story or not, what we have to know in a helpful way to feel a weight of this story is to know that before there was the cross, there was the exodus. Before there was the cross, there was the exodus. If we think of in terms of historical events on which Christians build their faith and come to an understanding of our faith, we think of the exodus. In fact, it is the book of Exodus in which key themes of the biblical story of redemption, they begin to take shape. It's the book of Exodus that will be forever used as a foundation to fill our faith with meaning through its pictures and its analogies and its stories, with possibly the most prominent theme in the book of Exodus being that of salvation. If you want to have a biblical understanding of salvation as to what it means to be saved, you don't turn to the back of your Bible and try and flick through a glossary. You go to the life of Moses. The story of the Exodus, the book of Exodus, where we read about the theme of being saved, the, the need to be saved, the desire to be saved, rescued. So let's read. If you've got a Bible there, please turn to Exodus chapter 1. If you've got a house Bible at the back of the door over the, either of the tables, it'll be on page 26, page 26. We're going to read Exodus chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 2. So settle in. We're going to read two chapters, starting at verse 1, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. And it reads like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all of that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly. They, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, and they're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they might join our enemies, and they might fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitim and Ramses, both but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife, as a midwife to the Hebrew women, to the Israelite women, and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives back in years later and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? So the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes. <laughs> I don't ask questions. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his peoples, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, the Israelites, you shall cast him into the Nile River, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took, and took as his wife a Levite woman, an Israelite, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it. She placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at the distance to know what would be, what would be done to him. Now the, Pharaoh, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened the basket, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and he looked that way and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and then he hid his body in the sand. Then he went out the next day. Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion, your friend? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, Surely this thing is known. 
When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, Well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters then, Where is he? Why have you, let this, why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread with us. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I, ha I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During these, those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. God, we thank you, God, that we gather as the church today. God, we thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we can come together, God, and we can remind each other, God, of who you are. We can remind each other, God, of what you've done in our lives, God, that we are your children, God, that through the blood of Christ, that we have been redeemed out of our sins, God, that we have been accepted into the family of God. So, God, would you once again this week remind us of that truth, God. Remind us, God, of who we are in Christ, that we're your sons, that we're your daughters. God, speak through us today, God. Remind us of things that we need to hear, God. Rebuke us where we need rebuked, God. Encourage us where we need encouraged, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we're starting a new series just let me give you a little bit more uh, background as to, a book, as to the book of Exodus. To put it simply, the book of Exodus is the story of the Israelites written down for the benefit of the Israelites. The book of Exodus is actually as part of a larger volume called the Pentateuch, which makes up the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the reason that these books were written on a larger scale was the same reason that Exodus was written. So the story of the Israelites was written down for the benefit of the Israelites so that they would know who they are, so that they would know their identity, so that they would know their history. And particularly when we read the story of the Exodus of God using Moses to free Israel from slavery in Egypt and lead them to the promised land, Moses is he's writing for the next generation of Israelites. His, his primary audience was not those that will flee Egypt. His primary audience is the children of those that fled. And Moses wrote down Israel's history for them so that a realization of their story would impact their present and impact their future. In fact, as Moses wrote the book of Exodus, he was close to, to dying. It was one of the final things that he did in his life to write down their history, their, their story. He knew he was going to be leaving them soon, and he wanted to say to them, learn from your past as you move forward. Learn from your past. Don't forget it. Don't forget who you are because I will no longer be there to remind you and guide you. 
So for us to, to glean from the writings of Moses, one of the questions that we need to be asking as we move through this series over the summer is how did Moses intend the impact to impact his original audience as he wrote it for them? What lessons did he want this new generation to learn? But we should also be asking, what does God want us to see? What does he want us to, to learn? In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle Paul, he, he's writing to the church in Corinth, a church like ours, and he, he mentions the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt. He mentions things that we're going to look, look at and stories we're going to hear over the next coming weeks. He, t he t talks about... Paul mentions that them crossing through the Red Sea. He talks about wandering in the wilderness. And then in verses 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Now these things were written down for our, our instruction. The, the New Testament, your New Testament, refers to or it alludes to the Exodus around 240 times. With the most sweeping and key theme being Israel, being freed from slavery in Egypt and led to the promised land of Canaan and how we through Christ are freed from slavery and sin and are being led to the promised kingdom of God. The most sweeping theme being Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt and led to the promised land of Canaan and how we through Christ are freed from slavery and sin and are being led to the promised kingdom of God. Exodus was written by Moses for the next generation of Israelites, and yet in God's sovereignty, it is also a foreshadowing of the gospel for us, and it's filled with instruction for our present day. So let's begin. Exodus chapter 1 verse 1 opens with the words, these are the names. These are the names, which actually is the book's original title. The title Exodus is actually coming from a Latin word, which was given to the book. But in its original Hebrew form, it would have been the first words that actually formed its title. So this gives us a little bit of a clue as to be what, what to be looking out for in the book of Exodus, since its title is, These Are the Names. And Exodus is actually where God first reveals his name, which we'll be looking at next week. But here in verse 1, it opens like this. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt, who came into Egypt. If you're going to one day leave Egypt, you need to enter Egypt in the first place. Verse 1 says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All of the sons of Jacob were 70 people, 70 people. The book of Exodus, it starts off talking about one family which is the family that you can read about throughout the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the only book before the book of Exodus. And if you work your way backwards through Genesis, you will work your way backwards through a family line. And you will get to a man called Abraham, whom God made a covenant with, a deep, deep, deep promise. In Genesis chapter 12, and then picked up again in Genesis 15, God says to this man, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
after the, the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and broke humanity's relationship with God, God set in motion a plan of redemption for the world to bring the world back into relationship with him. And part of the plan was to choose for himself a people through whom reconciliation with God, atonement for sin, would come. God wanted for himself a people who would reflect to the world who God was. He wanted a, a people that would tell the world and show the world how the world should relate to God, how the world could relate to God. So he says to this man, Abraham, through your family, I will create this nation, and this nation will be a blessing to the world. At the end of Genesis, things are looking pretty good. They weren't initially first Abraham's grandson, Joseph, who was sold to Egypt as a slave, but God was with Joseph, we read in Genesis, and he became incredibly successful in Egypt. And then he brought the rest of his family to live with him in Egypt, all 70 of them. And now Abraham's family are becoming great, blessed. They were living in, in high society in the most powerful nation in the world. Yes. God's promises was moving in the right direction. It was, God's promise was coming true. And even after Joseph, the successful great-grandson of Abraham, died, God's promise continued coming into fruition. Verse 6 of Exodus, Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel, being Israel being actually the grandson of Abraham, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The land of Egypt was filled with the family of Abraham. They had grown exceedingly strong. It's estimated that by this point they had grown to around 2 million people. God's promise was coming true. It was being fulfilled. But then there's a twist. Verse 8, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and they're too mighty for us. Verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. God's promise was coming true, being fulfilled. The plan was working out. Things were moving in the right direction. Everything looked like Israel was being set apart. Everything looked like Israel was being strategically placed, like a plan was unfolding. They had grown from 70 to 2 million, but now as Egypt begins to oppress Israel and turn them into slaves, it looks like everything's falling apart. Maybe you know how this feels to feel God's blessing on your life and then to feel it's gone. God's blessing your marriage and you can see how it's a picture of Christ's love for the church and then your marriage is struggling. You feel God's blessing and then you feel it's gone. You have been putting your heart and your soul into leading your small group or your ministry. People were committed and now numbers are dwindling to feel God's blessing and then to feel it's gone. You felt God's call on your life. Move to Chicago. Move across the world. But now it all seems like God's leading was for nothing. To feel God's blessing and then to feel it's gone. 
You know, children are a blessing. The early years were beautiful, but now you're worried where they're going to end up. You had the job, but now you don't. To feel God's blessing and then to feel it's gone. You know what God declares over you, that he will work all things for the good of those that love him, that he has promised to provide your daily bread. You know that he has a good work prepared for you and God's promises were coming true in your life. You've seen it working all for your good. You had your daily bread. You were enjoying the good work he'd prepared for you. You've seen God's promises over your life being fulfilled. A plan was unfolding, but now you don't see it. You don't feel it. Here's what happens to the Israelites. Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, they're too mighty. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. What happens is Pharaoh looks out over Egypt and he sees that the Israelites were becoming a potential threat. They are an immigrant community. They have their own ideas, their own culture. There are so many of them. We don't want them to dominate over our traditions. In verse 10, Pharaoh does some fear-mongering. He, he, he says to the Egyptians, he stirs this within them. Behold, the people of Israel are too many. They're too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they might join our enemies. They might even fight against us and escape. Or some translations have written, lest they take possession of our land. God was blessing the people of Israel. They were multiplying, but now they're being turned into slaves. They were prospering multiplying according to God's promises, but now, God, what happened? Where did you go? I thought a plan was unfolding. And even if we keep reading, things go from bad to worse. Between verses 15 to 22, we read this short story of how Pharaoh, he asks two midwives, Jifra and Pua, to, to kill Israelite sons that are born. And they refuse. It says God told them, it says God blessed them because they refused. But then Pharaoh's response comes in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you will throw into the river Nile, but you will let every daughter live. Kill the sons who would have grown up to fight against us, but let the daughters live. We can marry them and then, then we can assimilate them into our culture. We've, we've moved from verses 1 to 6 where we see God taking a family and turning them into a nation as he promised. But since then, we have gone from slavery to genocide. Feeling God's blessing and then feeling it's gone. There are two kinds of oppression that we see in Exodus. One is the oppression and the suffering experienced due to the brokenness of this world. We can be born into poverty. We can be born into literal slavery. We can be born into systemic injustice. The systems, the wars of this world can tear people's lives apart. That's the first kind of oppression. The oppression and suffering experienced due to the brokenness of this world. And we see this clearly in the story the second way oppression and suffering is experienced is due to the sin in our hearts. We are all born with the inclination to reject God. We're all born chained to our inclination to reject God. 
Two kinds of oppression that we see in Exodus. One we experience coming from the brokenness outside of ourselves. The other we experience coming from the brokenness inside ourselves. Israel experienced physical slavery under Pharaoh, which they did not bring on themselves. But also, Moses, in verse 14, which we're about to look at, Moses begins to allude to the fact they were also experiencing spiritual slavery, slavery due to their own sin. Let me explain this. Verses 13 and 14, they they read like this. It's kind of hard to read. That's kind of the point. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And what we find in this verse is the same Hebrew word on repeat. That's why it kind of feels clunky. It's the word that means to serve or even to serve in worship. If this passage passage was translated more directly... It would read, they made their lives bitter with serving in brick and mortar, with every kind of serving, with every kind of serving, they made them serve. And what we're seeing here is the beginning of a a kind of key theme in Exodus, one that the, the movies usually miss, one that we usually skip over at this point in the story, but it helps us to see it so that we make sense of the rest of the story. Later in Exodus, Moses will use this word, which means to serve, to refer to Israel's desire or lack of desire to worship, live for, serve the one true God. And here's the theme that's being introduced early in the story. If we serve anything or anyone but God, we are a slave to sin. If we serve anything or anyone but God, we are a slave to sin. We were made for freedom. And as we're going to find out later in this series, true freedom is not being free to do anything that we want as our culture may think and tell us. True freedom is to be released from the power of sin, from the pull of sin, from the gravity of sin, to do what we were created to do. Worship God with all of our hearts, minds, and strength. Being a slave to sin is like being created to run, but sin keeps us chained to the bench. Being a slave to sin is like being created to fly, but sin keeps our wings broken. Being a slave to sin is like being created to see, but sin keeps us blind. Sin is humanity's slavery. It holds us back. Worshiping God is humanity's freedom. Freedom to run, to fly, to see and be what God created us to to be in joyful relationship with him. We're going to be thinking more about how worship and freedom align later in this series. But just after Pharaoh commands the people to throw all of the Israelite baby boys into the river Nile, Exodus chapter 2 kicks off. And the narrative slows down to focus again on one family. Verse 2 of chapter 2 says, An Israelite woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. She knew that his life was in danger. Then when she couldn't hide the little baby anymore, she placed him in a basket. She placed the baby in the basket and then placed the basket in the River Nile. The word used here for basket is, the only, is only used one other time in the whole of the Old Testament. And the other time is when, ref, when referring to Noah's Ark, which saved Noah and the animals from the flood. This mother is hoping. She's desperate, maybe 
maybe, maybe God will save my son like he saved Noah and his family. She gently pushes him out into the river. Then verse 5 says this, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. She saw the basket in the reeds and sent her servant, Go get that. What is that? Verse 6, chapter, chapter 2, When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. So she took pity on him, and she thought, This must be one of the Israelite children. Then the little baby's sister who had been hiding in the reeds watching, she came forward and said, would you like me to find a, a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? To which Pharaoh's daughter responds, well, yes. So the girl went and she got the baby's mother. Not only, and not only that, but Pharaoh's daughter said to the baby's mother, take this child away, nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. It's a deal. It's a deal. I like that. And then verse 10, when the child grew older, the mother brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, which in Egyptian means son. Everything looks like Moses is being set apart. Everything looks like Moses is being strategically placed, like a plan is unfolding in his life. He's going to be raised in affluence. He's going to get the best education. He's going to be treated like the grandson of Pharaoh, who many believed was a god. Everything looks like Moses is being strategically placed to be a hero, like a plan is unfolding in his life. Then we arrive to verse 11, which reads like this. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So what we know from this is that Moses, he identifies himself with the Israelites. He has grown up in the palace, but he knows his background. He knows his history. And when he sees this fellow Israelite being beaten, verse 12 says this, he looked this way, he looked that way, and seeing no one, he, he struck down the Egyptian and then hit him in the sand. He killed the Egyptian, then he tried to cover his tracks, but somebody was watching. Verse 13, when he, and he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews, Israelites, were fighting together, and he said to the one in the wrong, why do you fight with your friend? To which the Israelites respond, who do you think you are to bring an issue up on my behavior? Who made you prince and judge over us? Are you going to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian? And in that moment, Moses' world caved in. All the prestige that he held, he seen slipping away. It says, then Moses was afraid and thought, everybody knows what I did. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled to Midian. He fled out into the wilderness. And then it says he sat down at a well. It was as if a plan was unfolding in his life. It looked as if God was fulfilling something. 
But then Moses failed to help his people. He failed as a citizen of Egypt. He failed in being accepted by the Israelites. It looked as if a plan was unfolding in his life. And then Moses sat down at a well in the wilderness. It looked like our marriage was going somewhere. It looked like our small group was flourishing. It looked like God had a calling on my life. And then we sit down at a well in the wilderness having felt God's blessing and now feeling it's gone. Wondering about the plan that could have been. One of the things that Moses does so well in writing these two chapters, in fact, he does it so clearly, it kind of had to be intentional. From verses 16 to verses 22, Moses ends up marrying a woman that he meets at the well. And he has a son with her he he calls Gershom, which sounds like the Hebrew word for alien, foreigner. Moses actually says in verse 22 that the reason he gave his son this name was that he had become a foreigner in a foreign land. He had become weak. He had become an outsider. He had become excluded. He no longer had the power. Power. (laughs) And it's precisely... I mean, switch that's kind of cool. And it's precisely at that moment that our expectations, our anticipations should peak. Let me explain why Moses sitting at the well should make us sit up. If we start reading our Bibles at the beginning of Genesis, what you would see is that God never works through insiders, only through outsiders. God consistently worked through those in the margins, the excluded and the oppressed. He worked through weakness, not through power. A Hebrew scholar called Robert Alter says, God always works through the wrong person. God always worked through the barren woman, the older woman, the unlovely, the unloved. If you read through Genesis, it's always Sarah, not Hagar, Leah, not Rachel, over and over and over in the book of Genesis. And here's the incredible thing through the chapters that that Moses just wrote that we've read this morning. In the chapters that we've read this morning, the only heroes by a long shot have been women. In a culture where women had a lower status. Listen to this. In chapter 1, verses 15, Pharaoh tells two midwives to kill all of the Israelite boys when they are born. Verse 17 says, the midwives feared God and they defied Pharaoh. The most powerful man presently on the planet and they defied him. Historians will tell us that midwives were usually women who did not have children of their own. And the significance of that is within this culture in which women who did not have children, they were considered at very best useless and at worst cursed by gods. They were relegated to a low status. Here God says, saves his people through women who were lower in social status than men and midwives who were lower in social status than women. And today, we still know their names in a book titled, These Are Their Names. Pharaoh's name, the demigod, we never find out. 
Historians are still debating who, which Pharaoh this was. We don't know. Moses didn't care. But Shifra and Pua, the names we know. Then we get to chapter two. We have a lady who stands with a baby in her womb, st- stirring up courage. And then when her baby is born, Moses' mother refuses to let her son be killed. She defies Pharaoh. She does everything in her power to protect her child as she slips him off in the direction of some other woman bathing in the river. And then the basket arrives to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter is a Gentile. Pharaoh's daughter is an outsider, a religious outsider, a racial, a racial outsider. And, but she is compassionate and she defies her father. And she decides to adopt, adopt a child her father has decreed should be killed. God uses a Gentile to save the people. God uses a woman. God uses the poor and the excluded, the racially, the gender, social, outsider. We have a team of women, two unable to have children, one in poverty and one a pagan princess. And God says, watch this. And so when we see Moses sitting down at that well, we see Moses moving into position. When we see him being excluded, being pushed to the margins, into the wilderness, we should be leaning in. Moses was not ready to lead when he was a prince, but when he sat down at that well in weakness and then spent 40 years shepherding sheep and then turned 80 years old, then God said, let's go game on. In Exodus 1 and 2, God is setting the stage. He's getting his people in place. Rogers Park, don't misunderstand and think God has left you when in fact he is positioning you and preparing you. We think God is weakening us, but it is in weakness he's positioning us. We thought a plan was unfolding. God's plan is unfolding. God has promises held over our lives, promises that are sowing into our lives, meaning and purpose, promises that we may not be able to see right now. Yet we today stand at a vantage point that even Moses didn't. We stand seeing that the death of Jesus, the death of Christ has made a way for the chains of sin in our lives to be removed so that we today can be fully accepted by God as his, knowing the root of all forms of pain, suffering, slavery have been cut one day to be banished. Our acceptance before God has been sealed. And listen to this, as children of God, all the promises of God stand over us with a resounding yes and amen. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who he has called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 31, 32, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we might walk in them. <laughs> Lastly, in the last verse, in the last few verses of chapter 2, verse 23 reads like this. 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God in, in the wonderful mystery of prayer of how God acts through the prayers of his people. In these final verses, we see that in God's sovereignty, he placed Israel in circumstances that would drop them to their knees. Circumstances they wouldn't have asked for. And yet these circumstances united them as a nation. These circumstances unsettled them from getting comfortable in Egypt and made them willing to leave. And these circumstances refocused their attention on the one true God. Then verse 24 reads, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Or as another translation puts it, God looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time for action. Moses finishes these chapters with a cliffhanger of hopeful expectation. Exodus 1 and 2 is the introduction, and he leaves it with hopeful expectation. And so this week, these chapters should leave us with a sense of expectation, a sense of anticipation, because God does not forget his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your promises. But not only that, God, we thank you that you sealed them through Christ. God, you made a way that we might know you, God. We, the wrath of God, your wrath, God, was going for us, God, because of our sin. And yet, God, you sent Christ to stand in our place so that we might receive his righteousness and be accepted to you. So we praise you, God. We thank you, God, for what you're doing in our lives, God. God, would you grow in us trust? God, when we can't see what we're doing, when we don't know what you're doing, when we think the plan goes blurry and the plan goes dark, may we look to your promises and know that you're there, that you're working, that you're unfolding your plan in our lives, God. In Jesus' name, amen.
That was fun. <laughs> Church is fun. Thank you guys so much uh, for coming and being with us now. We have a, a partners meeting, so if you're a partner, you can head uh, down to that room, make your way down there. We're going to get that started as soon as we can. But hear these words as you go. May you go out this week with expectation, anticipation, knowing that God does not forget his people. Go share that. God bless.